This is the fifth week of our series, I Can Relate, and we're talking about the family. And uh, can we become the family uh, that God designed and created us to be? And if we were, what would it look like and what would it take? And last week, if you were here, we celebrated Mother's Day by talking to moms about the five contributions you make in the lives of your kids. We look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we learned that there's tenderness, there's authenticity, there's confidence, there's love. Their self-control, and that's the difference you make in our lives. Now, this weekend, we're going to shift gears, and I'm going to be talking to the dads about the contributions that you make in the lives of your kids. By the way, let me just say this. Everybody here this weekend has at least one thing in common. We all had a dad. And I'm going to tell you something. Your dad, he left a thumbprint on your life that will never be erased, even though some of you wish it could be. It will never be erased. For example, some of you, you came from a home where your dad wasn't very dependable. Maybe when you think about your dad, you would use words like unstable or maybe even weak. Or maybe, maybe the word angry better fits your dad or impatient or maybe irritable or maybe he was absent or maybe it was just a formal distance. In other words, he was somewhere, right, but he wasn't where you were. Or perhaps the thumbprint that your dad left on your life, maybe it was a positive one. You know, maybe your dad was a man of integrity. Maybe when you talk about your dad, you use words like godly or dependable. Maybe he was a man who just loved you deeply and he, had, he, had a, he could show it in a hundred different ways just how much you meant to him. But whatever, whatever your dad was like, I am telling you based on personal experience, the role of a father, it is a difficult one to fill. And so as a result of that, part of what you're going to hear this weekend is going to be funny, maybe even enjoyable. Part of what you hear is going to be uh, desperately serious. But we're going to talk about it. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. We're going to put the verses up on the screen. By the way, to the surprise of many Christians, 1 Thessalonians was actually the first letter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote to a church. It's the first letter that made its way into our Bible. But you can't really appreciate where Paul is coming from in this letter uh, as he talks about fathers unless you understand the background of, of, of 1 Thessalonians. So let me just give you a little bit of background. This is a letter that was written around 50 AD. It was written during a time of intense persecution. Paul was traveling with a friend of his. His name was Silas. They were on their second missionary journey. They're just coming off a trip to Philippi where Paul and Silas literally were beaten within an inch of their life. Not, not only that, they were thrown into jail. In fact, I am confident that when Paul wrote this letter to the Thessalonians, he was still nursing the wounds from that beatdown. But eventually they got, they got out of prison, they were released from jail, and they make their way from Philippi to the next city on their itinerary, which is the city of Thessalonica. And when they get there, they spend six weeks there. And Paul ministers there. Now what kind of ministry was it? Well, if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. In other words, Paul says it was productive. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you this gospel. But notice this last phrase, in the face of strong opposition. We shared the gospel with you, but even there, it was in the face of strong opposition. That tells us that the persecution of Paul and Silas didn't stop just because they left Philippi. In fact, when they arrived in Thessalonica, they found out that some of the people that were making their life so miserable in Philippi had actually followed them to Thessalonica. And for six weeks, again, they made Paul's life miserable. Until finally, Paul and Silas, and by now, Timothy, young Timothy, we talked about him last weekend. Now he has joined them on their journeys, and they leave Thessalonica, and they make their way to Athens. But even though Paul's in Athens, understand, his heart is still beating for the people of Thessalonica. And so he decides to do two things to encourage them. First of all, he sends Timothy back to Thessal Thessalonica to spend some time with them. It says in chapter three, verse one of 1 Thessalonians, so when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who was our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. So he sends Timothy back so that he can strengthen, that he can encourage the Thessalonians. And then after he's been there for a while, he returns to Greece and he reports to Paul. He says, listen, they're doing great. They're hanging tough. They're, they're, they're standing strong. They're right on track. The second thing Paul does is he writes them this letter. He wrote it from Athens, and, and just like we saw last week in, in looking at 2 Timothy, it just absolutely drips with emotion and affection for these people. And as Paul reflects on the short time he had with the Thessalonians, this is what he writes, chapter 2, verse 3. 
For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though, look at this, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. In other words, Paul is saying this, when we were with you, we didn't play the apostle card. And we can't really appreciate that because we don't have apostles today, not in the New Testament sense. I mean, we have people who have the title apostles, but understand from the New Testament sense, you could only be, one of the qualifications for being an apostle of Jesus Christ is you had to have seen Jesus after the resurrection. And I doubt that there are many apostles running around today that have pulled that off. They probably haven't seen Jesus after the resurrection. We know that happened for Paul when he was on his way to Damascus to persecute the Christians and Jesus showed up and had the first ever come to Jesus meeting right there on the road to Damascus. And Paul made the decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ. His life was totally transformed. And so we know that Paul was an apostle. And you have to understand that during the first century, I mean, an apostle, because the Bible was not completed, they spoke for God. They were able to perform miracles to authenticate that they were speaking for God. And so when an apostle came to town, I'm telling you, the church rolled out the red carpet. And so Paul says, listen, we could have pulled out our apostle card. We could have flashed the card. We could have said to you, provide my lodging, fix my meals, make my bed, wash my clothes. Paul said, we didn't do that. He said, when we were with you, we didn't treat you that way. Instead, look at chapter two, verse seven. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. You can't get any, any more intimate than that. He said, we just, when we were with you, we just loved on you. We nurtured you. But he also adds in verse 11, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. So Paul says, man, when we were with you, we treated you the way a mom and dad would treat their own children. Now, last week, as I said, we looked at the contributions that a mother makes in the life of their children. This week, we're going to look at the contributions that a dad makes. And I find five of them mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Let's start in verse 8. The first one's fond affection. Let's unpack it. He says in verse 8, because we loved you so much. Now, if you have a New American Standard Bible, which I actually prefer over the New International Version, but so many of you have the NIV, I just go with it, right? But I feel like the New American Standard Translation is probably more accurate. And if you have one, it says this, we had such a fond affection for you. And that is a be much better translation of this word love. And let me tell you why. Paul, when he wrote this, he had at his disposal several Greek words he could use for this word love. For example, he could have used the word agape. And if you're a Christian, if you've been around church for a while, you've heard the word agape. It's seeking the highest good of another person. It's not an emotional love. It's not a love that has feeling. It's a love of the mind. It's like, I don't really even know you, or maybe you've hurt me, or maybe we're not getting along, but I've made the decision, I'm gonna seek your highest good. That's agape love. That's not the word that Paul uses. He could have used the Greek word philos which means brotherly affection, brotherly love, means friendship. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It comes from the Greek word phila. He doesn't use that. Paul uses a word here, think about this, for love. It is not used anywhere else in the New Testament, which means it is as rare as the trade itself. Uh, Gerhard Kittel has written a book entitled Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And pastor geeks like me, we read stuff like that. And he describes this word Paul uses this way. He says, it's to feel oneself drawn to another. There's a strong intensity implied in the term. It consists of a warm inward attachment, unconditional commitment, our heartfelt love Within. But another theologian described it this way. He wrote, it's a term of endearment derived from the language of the nursery. It's a tender term. And I think that that's a very fitting description for fond affection. Do you remember the first time you held your first child? I remember bringing Aaron, he's my oldest, home from the hospital. And I say that because we went into the hospital expecting a normal delivery. It ended up being an emergency C-section. So Aaron was ready to go home before Laura was ready to go home. And I'll never forget the day I walked in. They said, are you going to take Aaron home today? I said, yep, let me go get Laura. And they're like, well, she ain't going home. I said, excuse me? 
So at 24 years old, I don't know what to do. Is I take this baby home, okay? You know, what a, you know what a dad's first thought is when he holds that baby? I'm gonna break him. You know what their thought is 15 years later? I should have broken him. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. But Aaron, and I think it was the separation anxiety, he needed to be with mom, right? He had been with mom with nine months. He was missing mom, right? And he would cry and cry and cry. And all I knew to do was, you know how they taught you to wrap him up like a burrito? I call it like the baby, you know, straight jacket, you know what I'm saying? And, and then just hold him. And if I would hold him, and maybe it was just the sound of my heartbeat, I don't know. It was the only thing that would quiet him. That's the word Paul is using here. Because we loved you, we had such a fond affection for you. Now, here's the question. Dads, why do we stop doing that? Why do we stop holding our children? Why do we stop showing them affection? I, I've never seen any authoritative literature that says children outgrow the need to be held, to be hugged. They never outgrow physical affection. And Paul suggests here in this chapter that it is the mark of a good, faithful, godly father. And I'm telling you, your kids know whether or not you have this trait. But it's something you have the chance to invest in them, pass on to them. So let me ask you the question. When's the last time you hugged your teenage? Like last time they took a shower, right? And you know, maybe then, maybe then. Or maybe, maybe when's the last time you hugged your college son or daughter? Or if you're like me, my boys are adults, 37 and 34, you know. When's the last time you hugged and held your adult kids? You say, Mike, why is that even important at that age? Well, you remember the story of the prodigal son? Remember the young man that came to his dad and said, I want everything that's rightly mine. I want to go off. I want to check out the world. I want to sow my wild oats. And he takes off. The dad doesn't even try to stop him. And he goes out. And I mean, he is having the time of his life. It says he went to a distant land. I mean, there's wine. There's women in song. He's buying the rounds at the bars. He's hitting the strip clubs until one morning after, one morning after an all-nighter, he goes to the ATM because he wants to hit the Waffle House before he goes to bed, right? Nothing. Empty. And he begins to spiral, and eventually he finds himself sitting in a pig pen, eating the leftovers after the pigs would eat. And it says in that pig pen, he came to his senses. I talked to a young wife and mother yesterday of four children, five-year-old, eight-year-old, twin, two-year-old, all sons. Dad left, took off, met someone else, got her pregnant, now he's living with her. And the dream that she thought was going to be her life is not that dream anymore. And she said, hey, Mike, he used to sit in church every week and listen to you. What happens? They go crazy. They lose their mind. And sometimes maybe they come to their senses. Sometimes they don't. This guy, he came to his senses. And I can imagine him sitting up against one of the posts of that pig pen thinking, wow, how in the world did I ever get into this situation? And he thinks, man, my dad has servants back home who are living a better life than I am. Maybe I should go home to dad. And he begins to work up in his mind what he's gonna to say to his dad when he sees him because, see, he knows dads. There's got to be consequences to your decisions. You have to make, there's got something you've got to pay. So that's how dads are. So he's thinking, what am I gonna tell my dad so he'll at least let me come back to be a servant? Meanwhile, back at the ranch, every day dad's walking out to the end of the driveway looking down the road thinking this could be the day. This could be the day. Nothing. Next day, nothing. Next day, nothing, 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 nothing. Finally, one day, he looks down the road, and he sees a gaunt silhouette in the distance. And he can tell by his stride, that's my son. And Jesus tells this story. He says that this Jewish father did two things that Jewish fathers in the first century did not do, which really impacted his audience. First of all, he ran. He pulled up his robe and ran to his son. First century Jewish fathers did not do that. And when he got there, you know immediately his son began to deliver the speech. Dad, I am so sorry. I've learned my ways. And dad's like, shut up. And he hugs him. And second thing Jewish fathers did not do, he covers his son with kisses. See, let me ask you a question. You think that kid felt loved, accepted, safe, secure? See, you got to understand, that's why our kids never outgrow it. They always need that from us. Now, let me just say this. Be careful about starting too fast. You want to go slow. I mean, if you decide I'm going in for the hug, warn them. Give them a heads up. You don't want to freak them out. Send them into shock, okay? But dads, that's something that we impart to our kids. You know what's interesting? My boys are so strong 
they pick me up and shake me around like a rag doll. And we still have that playful affection. In fact, coming in this weekend, my oldest son saw me in the lobby and just picked me up, shakes me around, plays with me, puts me down, lets me come in and do my job, right? But we never outgrow that need for affection. Here's the second contribution you make in the life of your kids. The imparting of life not just words. And I say not just words because, Dad, let's face it, we love to get features. Like, okay, I'm going to set you down. We're going to have a little assembly here, and I'm going to straighten you out. It's not just that. It's the imparting of life. Look what it says in verse 8. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And I'm telling you, in the same way, they may not act like it, but our children long for us to to share our lives with them. See, they hear our words, but they know our words come from our head. They want us to impart life. They want us to, to leave a thumbprint on them. They're never gonna tell you that, but they are, that's the way they're wired, they're, they long for it. But that's just too vague. Let me give you some examples of things your kids need to learn from you, will learn from you as you impart life, not just give speeches. Here's the first one, proper values. Your child is gonna learn Proper values by you imparting life, see? They, they, they learn what's important from you, from watching you, from observing you, and they never, ever miss a thing, see? They don't miss it when you call in and say, hey, I'm not going to make it today. I'm under the weather. And then you get your golf clubs and head out to the car. See, they learn their values from you. I came across this quote, values are not taught to our children. They are caught by them. In other words, observing, they learn what is really, really important to us. See, we can talk about, you know, you ought to go to youth group. You ought to go to Pulse. You ought to go to Hazardous. But see, when the weekend rolls around, you have every reason in the world why you don't want to go to church. See, they learn what's really important to you. Here's the second thing you can impart. The ability to make decisions and stick with it. My dad's been in attendance this weekend. And my dad, he's just one of those guys. He's not a man of many words. He's a very quiet man, very soft-spoken man. But when he gives you his word, it's his bond. In fact, my sister and I were talking one day, and we were trying to remember one time in our lives our dad said he was going to do something, and he didn't do it, and we could not remember a time. So they're going to learn that from you. You know what else you could impart to them? A sense of humor that helps them not take life and take themselves so seriously. But you know what the problem is? Have you guys noticed this? Have you noticed how grumpy dads can be? I mean, have you noticed? You come in from work and you're like the missing link. You're like, you know, who left the bike in the driveway? I thought I told you to cut the grass. Why are you spending so much time on that computer? Always playing video games. And I'm, sure, I'm not sure why we're like that. I know what you're saying. Well, Mike, I have to work for a living. It's, you know, it's a jungle out there. I get, I get that. Big deal. Life's tough. But here's the problem. As a result, when we're home, what happens is, Everybody walks on eggshells, right? When's the last time your kids, regardless of what's going on, you reminded them that the home is a joyful place to be? So you get to set the pace for that. In fact, uh, you want to talk about life being tough. We have a couple in our church, Tony and Kathy Luparello. You've seen their story on video. Kathy's actually on staff for us. She works in Kid City, family ministries. But a, a while back, a few months ago, Tony had to have one of his legs amputated because of disease, diabetes, kidney failure. And this past Thursday, he had to have his second leg amputated. Now, he's a husband, a father. He works full time. He serves as a large group leader in Kid City. And when he's not doing that, he serves as a small group leader in Kid City. And with all that going on and having just had his legs amputated. The day afterwards, he posted something on Facebook that someone showed me, and I just have to show it to you. It'll give you some perspective. Watch this. Hey, everybody. <laughs> uh, we wanted to do a quick update. Uh, it's been a couple days, I guess, and uh, time flies when you're um, on morphine, I guess. Uh, we made a top 10 list that is quite cheesy. And uh, this is the help of my one of my sisters here. I won't name her. Yeah, so these are the top 10... Advantages to be in a double amputee. All right, n number one, no more hanging off the bed. Tony is 6'4", that was a problem before. No more hanging off the bed. Um, I will save lots of time not having to clip my toenails. Uh, no more cold feet. Yep, 
Um, I can be as tall as I want uh, with my new prosthetic legs. So maybe you can be 6'6". Six, six, That's right. You can be 5'2". This depends on the sport <laughs> I'm playing, you know? Yep. So you're number five, number five. Um, he can go as a super authentic Lieutenant Dan for Halloween this year. <laughs> True statement. Um, I will never have to pay for a seat upgrade on an airplane uh, for the extra leg room. Um, he can wear short, all shorts all the time. True statement. Um, you know those signs, uh, keeping all hands and feet inside the moving vehicle? That's only half as restricted for me right now. Um, and he can go ahead and unsubscribe from the Dr. Scholl's new newsletter. This is so bad. <laughs> uh, stepping on a Lego is the worst for everyone but me. <laughs> yeah, we wanted to update you guys, but we really do um, appreciate all the, the love and the support you're throwing our way. Look at all those uh, hearts coming on the screen. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Hey, I do have one quick request. Doug Juris, uh, my understanding is he went in for surgery today, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah. So uh, if you guys know him, if, even if you don't, can you please pray for Doug um, and, uh, and Murray and their whole family? That's the last thing I wanted to say. Yep. Are we good? Yeah, All right. Good. Peace out. Love you guys. Talk to you soon. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that amazing? I couldn't believe it when I said, I mean, we think life's tough. Does that give you some perspective? And even in that, he could find a way to smile. And not only that. Says, and make sure you pray for Doug, who, by the way, came through his cancer surgery. Incredible. Got a great report back from the doctor. He's on staff here with us also. But, Dad, I'm telling you, that's what we need to bring. Listen, our world is bleak and dark and hopeless enough. And, Dads, we have the opportunity to remind our kids, yeah, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. We can always find that area to put a smile. So not just imparting of life. You know, I mean, imparting a life, not just giving speeches and telling the kids how it has to be. Here's a, here's a third contribution, dads, that we can make. An example of hard work and unselfishness. It says in verse 9, Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. Again, that's an apostle talking. He didn't have to work. He could have just strolled into town, thrown his weight around, flashed his apostle card. But the very first thing Paul asked when he gets to town is this, anybody know where I can find a job? And my point is this, Dad, your kids are going to get their work ethic from your work ethic. They're going to watch you. They're going to pick it up. I don't know if I've told you the story of my dad, but he was, he was part of a large family. My grandfather was an alcoholic. In fact, I never saw my grandfather sober. As a result of that, to take care of the family, my dad dropped out of school in the eighth grade and took a full-time job as a meat cutter. Can you imagine your eighth grader taking on that responsibility to support the family? He then later joined the Air Force, served in Germany, where he learned a trade as a machinist, came home and spent the rest of his life working in a machine shop as a machinist. When I went to college, we didn't have money for me to go to college, so we made an agreement. I worked janitorial work every night uh, after 10 o'clock to 2 a.m., got up and went to class the next day. But my dad, knowing it was going to be needed, went back to a grocery store every Saturday and worked an extra 10 hours after working all week on his feet as a machinist, as a meat cutter, so I would have the opportunity to get, a, get an education. But it taught a couple of things. One, his work ethic was incredible but that sense of unselfishness. I'll do whatever needs to be done to take care of my family. And I think it would be amazing and shocking for us to know how many of you dads get up every day and absolutely hate going to work. And the problem is this, when we have an attitude like that toward work, you can't hide it from your kids. They're gonna pick it up and they don't need to see that. What they need to see is an example of hard work and unselfishness. And when they see that, when they have that example, not only will they develop a good work ethic, you know what else it does for your children? Because of your unselfishness, it provides incredible security for them. I mean, your family just needs to know. They should never have to go to bed worrying, is dad going to take care of us? They need to know you're going to do whatever it takes to make their security a reality. I remember how important that was when we left California and moved here to start a church. I had a really good job as a pastor in California. I lived in a beautiful house. We had a swimming pool. We went on nice exotic vacations, drove nice cars, and my kids had ever, only ever gone to private schools. And then we moved here. And all of a sudden, we were starting from scratch all over again. And we moved into an 800-square-foot apartment, two bedrooms. For the very first time, I dropped my kids in the middle of the year into public school. I think one of the biggest mistakes I ever made in my life, that kind of transition they just weren't ready for. And then Laura had to go to work, and, and they had always had mom at home. 
They'd always had mom at home. She worked with children's ministry and things like that. But they, she was always home when they got home from school. But all of a sudden, she's got to go back to work so we can have some insurance and things like that. And I just did whatever I could. I'm trying to gather people together to start a church. I got to get ready to teach every weekend. But I spent a few years framing houses. When Wake Med built their new cardiac ward on the top floor, I helped build the scaffolding around the hospital so that they could build that. I had one little job. I had a pickup truck. I would go around on monies and all the signs that builders would put out on the weekends about open house models and all this stuff for developments. And they'd put signs all over the intersection. My job was to go on money and collect them all in my pickup truck. So I would do that. I even spent time at Food Lion bagging groceries. But see, this is what my kids knew. They knew they didn't have to worry. They knew somehow Dad was going to figure out how to make this a reality. And they didn't worry because they knew they had a hardworking, dependable, good-looking dad. You know what I'm saying? Well, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Two out of three, right? But men, we have to do that. We have to set that example that we will do whatever is necessary to make that security a reality. So your kids, they'll get their work ethic from you. You're going to pass that down. They'll also learn unselfishness from you. Here's another one. This is where you get a chance. The fourth contribution you can make is that of a spiritual leader. What it says in verse 9. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. Now look at this. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believe. They were spiritual leaders. Now, forgive me ahead of time if this leaves a mark. But I'm telling you, most of our homes live under a female government when it comes to the spiritual life of our families. As I said last week, the spiritual leader in most of the homes of this church, hands down, is the mom. Now, here's the problem with that. That's not the way God designed it. And moms, let me just say, you're doing a remarkable job of standing in the gap. It's not your fault. But I've searched the Bible. I've read the Bible. I've studied the Bible. It is full of illustrations of dads, not perfect men, very human, very fallible, but men who took the lead, men who set the pace. And I'm just going to tell you, based on the authority of God's word, you men, you are God's preferred channel to lead your home spiritually. But I tell you, the number one complaint from Christian women in marriage counseling is that their husband will not lead spiritually. He will not set the pace. By the way, let me just say this. When we talk about leadership, we're not talking about domination. Nobody wants to be dominated, male or female. In fact, I'll tell you, the most destructive homes in our society are the homes where there is a dominant dad. Domination is never right. Let me give you another word just to, just to help you relax a, a, a little bit. Another word for leadership, not domination, but initiation. That's all leadership is. It's just, it's just initiation. It's just taking the lead. And men, we are supposed to lead our wives, and we are supposed to lead our family the way Christ led the church. But can you imagine if you went to God for leadership, or you went to God for direction, and he led you the way you led your family? Can you imagine if God was dominating if he put you down? Can you imagine if God criticized you? You know, would you want to follow a leader like that? What, what if God was an absent leader? What if you went to God with a question and his response was, I don't know. God, should I take this job? I don't know. God, how do we handle this situation with our kids? I don't know. See, But that's not God. God gives us leadership. He gives us direction. Now, let me tell you something. That's what our family wants from us. That's the way God wired them. They want us to take the lead in spiritual matters. They want us to initiate. Let me give you a couple of areas where, man, you should be initiating, okay? And this is not to make you feel guilty, but I want you to know what God's called you to, right? Here's one. Church attendance. Church attendance. You know, a question we never discussed in my house, ever. Just like we never discussed, hey, am I going to school on Monday? Nope. You never discussed that. Or was my dad going to go to work? Nope, we never discussed that. You don't discuss that in your home. Why do you discuss whether or not you're going to go to church? Why is it sometimes if there's nothing else to do, you'll go to church? I can tell you, if you commit yourself to Hope Community Church, it will have a shaping influence on your life. But see, guys, you can't sit around and tell your kids, you need to be doing this, you need to go to this, and then they look at you and like, you don't go. And you know what's going to happen? They're going to turn 16, and you're going to really want them to be in church. And they're going to say, well, why is it important now? It wasn't important when I had soccer games. It wasn't important when I had swim meets. It wasn't important when we wanted to do everything else. Why is it important now? Man, you need, you need to set the pace. You need to set the lead on that. Here's another one. Giving. You need to take the initiative to help your kids become 
kids of generosity. You know what all of us got for our birthdays when we turned six years old? A box of offering envelopes. You remember those old days where you got a box of envelopes? You had 52 envelopes for 52 Sundays, and they actually dated the Sundays of the year. My dad had four kids. He gave each of us a box of envelopes. He kept them in his dress, at top of his dresser drawer. Each Sunday we went in, he gave us the next one for that day, all four of us. And he, he knew if we cut grass, if the, my sister's babysat, if we got some allowance, if we got some birthday money, whatever it was, he expected 10% of that to go in that envelope and to go into church. And you know what? He checked our giving record. Woo. And if we missed you know, we better explain that pack of gum. We better have a good reason that we got that pack of gum, right? But that's where he took the lead. He initiated. He taught us how to be, even as six-year-olds, how to be people. To, Dad, you need to take the lead. You need to figure out how to do that, what that looks like. You need to sit down with your kids and let me say, let me show you what, what, I, what we do as a family. And you can go online. You can go to the app. You can take them by the offering box and say, let me tell you why we do this, why it's important that we do this as family, why it's important that you do it but you gotta take the lead there. Here's another one, serving. I'm telling you, dads that serve, that make it a priority, produce kids that have a heart of serving other people. You produce kids who understand that life does not revolve around them. And at all of our campuses, we're talking about that. You know what, as a dad, you ought to go home after these services and sit down and say, as a family, can we serve? Are there areas we can serve together? but you need to take the lead there. Gordon McDonald in one of his books writes this. He tells the tale of a medieval sidewalk superintendent who asked three stonemasons on a construction project what they were doing. He writes this. The first replied that he was laying bricks. The second described his work as that of building a wall. But it was the third laborer who demonstrated genuine esteem for his work when he said, I am raising a great cathedral. He said, pose that same question to any two fathers concerning their role in the family, and you're liable to get the same kind of contrast. The first may say, I am supporting a family, but the second may see things differently and say, I am raising children. The former looks at his job as putting bread on the table, but the latter sees things in God's perspective. He is participating in the shaping of lives. Which leads to the question, dads, do you see your role that way? You're not just putting a roof over your kids' heads. You're not just putting food on the table. You are shaping lives. And as a result, your kids need a spiritual leader. They just need you. Not only do they need you, they want you to set the pace. Here's the fifth contribution. An authentic positive influence. Look what it says in verse 10. You are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. The Phillips translation says honest, straightforward, and above criticism. The Living Bible says pure, honest, and faultless. But both say honest. I think it means this. One of the main impacts you're going to have on your family is your honesty and your integrity. Do you know what that means? It means, Dad, when you react wrong in a family situation, admit it. When you blow it as a dad, Admit it. Do you know why it's so important? It's important because it shows your kids that even when you're an adult, you can still blow it. Not only blow it, you can be vulnerable enough to admit that you blew it. You say, well, Mike, if I told them that, it would destroy my, their image of me. Are you kidding me? It will enhance your image. It will not blow it. Dan Benson has written a book, The Total Man, Is Dad Really Necessary? He writes this, a stunning fact was revealed in a survey taken across the nation that showed that a parent averages 10 negative comments to every one positive comment in their homes. Isn't that the truth? Don't slurp. Sit up straight, get a haircut. Don't walk like that. Hold your shoulders up. You smell bad. You know, the grass looks horrible. You did a terrible job. You embarrassed me. I mean, Paul says, no, 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 you're, you're, moving, you're getting it all wrong. That's not what we do. We don't tear down, we build up. In fact, he even tells us what it looks like in verse 11. He says, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. Now look at how Paul tells us a father should be dealing with his own children. Encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. All positive. Encourage, it means that you lift their spirits. You don't break their spirit. You don't destroy their spirit. You lift their spirit. To comfort means that you help them understand they can fail some in life and it's gonna be okay. To urge means that you help them stretch their potential even beyond what they think is possible. You help them reach further. You help them believe in themselves. Let them learn. Give them a break. Don't just assume that they're gonna do something bad. Don't just assume that they're gonna screw up. I mean, allow them to make a mess. You ever seen a kid who didn't make a mess? They're all going to make messes, right? Are you encouraged yet? 
Good. Are you encouraged yet? I got an email this week that lit me up. So you, why are you so nice to the women? Tell the women how wonderful they are, and, but you just are so mean to the men and you make fun of us. And I'll tell you why. Because God set the bar really high for us. See, we're to lead our wives. We're to initiate. We're to initiate with our family. You know what that means? It doesn't mean we have power. It has nothing to do with authority. You know what it has to do with? Accountability. It means when I stand before God, I believe God's going to ask me point blank, how did you do as a husband? How did you do as a dad? I want to make sure I get it right. And I'm not perfect by a long shot. But I want to make sure I get it right. Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorite writers, wrote this. Dad, is it possible? It is possible you've gotten overly committed, so involved in your work or some area or some away from home project or hobby that it is draining your time and energy with your family. He writes, I understand. Believe me, I do. Maybe it's hard for you to come up close and be vulnerable, even, even with your kids. And then he explains why. How easy to get squeezed into a system that began with the Industrial Revolution. A mass migration brought people from quiet, family-oriented farms to busy cities, big factories, tight living quarters. Urban fathers left home early and returned late. By the mid-20th century, even the grandfathers, once the revered wise sages of homesteads, were shunted off the retirement villages or old folks' homes. Imperceptibly, dads have become shadows in dark rooms, leaving before dawn, returning after bedtime. Instead of challenging fathers to give of themselves, the system encourages them to give the stuff their increased salaries can buy. A better education, a membership at the club, material possessions, nicer home, extra cars, personal TV, credit cards, cell phones, computers, the list goes on. But what about dad himself? And that priceless apprenticeship learned in his presence. And that healthy masculine influence. And that integrity which rubs off the older onto the younger. It's gotten lost in the shuffle. The adversary has won a tragic victory which no church, no school, no occupation, no coach, no therapy group, no hobby can fully overcome. The absent father has emerged. It's time for you and me to cut a new course. And he writes this. Come on, dads. Let's lead a revolt. I like that. Let's lead a revolt. Let's give it our best shot. Let's refuse to take our cue from the world system any longer. Let's start saying no to more and more of the things that pull us farther and farther away from the ones who need us the most. Let's remember that the greatest earthly gift we can provide are our presence and influence while we live in a magnificent memory of our lives once we are gone. You're not perfect. So what else is new? You don't know exactly how to pull it off? Well, welcome to the club. Your family doesn't expect profound perfection. They don't expect command performances or a superhuman plan. Just you, warts and all, your smile, your affirmation, your gentleness, your support, your leadership, your involvement, you. And he closes, come on dads. Let's get started before all our children have is a memory of us. I love that. Listen, you may not be perfect, but you can be around. You may not be perfect, but you can give it all you've got. I wish I could do all the stuff I preach, and so does my family, right? But I tell you what, I'm there. Aaron and Adam, they know who their dad is 24-7. Warts and all. Warts and all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a perfect heavenly father. But Father, it scares me every time I read a report that says that our children will determine their vision of you, their view of you, based on how they see us. And if they see us as ones who don't keep our words, who aren't faithful in the small things, we say one thing, but we do another. That's how they're going to perceive you, God, Father. And that's an incredible amount of responsibility on us as dads. I know we're not perfect. We never will be. You're the only perfect father. But God, we can, we can work. We can change. It's never too late to start doing us right. 
Some of these dads this weekend listening all through these campuses, they need to go home. They need to sit down. They need to say, you know what, kids? I haven't been the dad I should have been. I haven't initiated. I haven't led. And it's amazing how much forgiveness our children have. And then we step into that gap and we begin to be that man that you called us to be, that you created us to be, that you designed us to be in a role that you designed us to fill. May we do that and may we do it boldly and may we rely every day on you as our great example. And Father, I pray for those here who didn't have a great earthly father. Remind them that you are the perfect heavenly father who never makes mistakes, who will never leave them, who will never forsake them. We love you for loving us. In your name we pray, amen.
they know who their dad is 24-7. Warts and all. Warts and all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a perfect heavenly father. But Father, it scares me every time I read a report that says that our children will determine their vision of you, their view of you, based on how they see us. And if they see us as ones who don't keep our words, who aren't faithful in the small things, we say one thing, but we do another, that's how they're going to perceive you, Father. And that's an incredible amount of responsibility on us as dads. I know we're not perfect. We never will be. You're the only perfect father. But God, we can, we can work. We can change. It's never too late to start doing us right. Some of these dads this weekend listening all through these campuses, they need to go home. They need to sit down. They need to say, you know what, kids? I haven't been the dad I should have been. I haven't initiated. I haven't led. And it's amazing how much forgiveness our children have. And then we step into that gap and we begin to be that man that you've called us to be, that you created us to be, that you designed us to be in a role that you designed us to fill. May we do that and may we do it boldly and may we rely every day on you as our great example. And Father, I pray for those here who didn't have a great earthly father. Remind them that you are the perfect heavenly father who never makes mistakes, who will never leave them, who will never forsake them. We love you for loving us. In your name we pray, amen. We'll wrap it up next week by talking about parenting. Jason. Yeah, man, great, great message. Yeah. Let's start a revolt and be the dads that God has called us to be. That's awesome. Uh, men, we do have some counselors available for you. I'm just kidding. We don't have counselors available. Uh, I tell you what, if you are looking for a resource, just write this down really fast. Gethope.net slash men. All of our resources that we have for men, dads, husbands is on that page. You can check that out. Hey, if you're new, we would love to meet you. Just head out these auditorium doors. Turn left. We have a free Chick-fil-A gift card for you just for being here, just our gift to you. We'd love to meet you, answer any questions that you might have. And lastly, you heard a lot about serving this weekend. And so if you've decided it is time for me to get in the game, we've made it super simple for you. Head out the auditorium doors, turn left. Again, go to our Next Steps area, or you can use the Get Hope app right there on the opening page. There's a button you can press, serve one, attend one. Before you even leave the auditorium, you can choose a place that you want to try out, click a couple buttons, and then we'll follow up with you right away. All right? Thank you guys for being here. We love you. We look forward to seeing you next week. You are dismissed.